Thanks, Wade. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here, and I talk too fast. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Before we get into that, let me just catch you up in case you're just now joining us. We are going through the granddaddy Jedi Master SEAL Team 6 of Paul's letters, which is the book of Romans. In chapter 1, you get what's called the condemnation of the Gentile, where the Apostle Paul will say, even if you don't have a Bible, even if you're some pagan nation without the Old Testament, you still do by nature what is wrong and therefore fall under the condemnation of God. In chapter 2, you get what's called the condemnation of the Jew, where the Apostle Paul will say, even if you have a Bible, even if you have the Old Testament, you can't keep it and therefore you fall under the condemnation of God. Okay? Last week, Jeff talked with us about the end of chapter 2, and basically what the Apostle Paul will say at the end of chapter 2 is this, that circumcision in being a Jew is not merely something that's physical, it's something that's spiritual. If you want to follow the God of Israel, you don't do it by being born of a certain ethnicity. You do it by putting your faith in Jesus, who is the true seed of Abraham. To say it stronger, if you want to become a Jew, become a Christian. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to say. Now... Today, we're going to get into a text that's kind of weird. Next week, we're going to get into one of the most condemning texts in the Bible. Doesn't that sound like fun? And then on Easter, we'll have some good news, all right? And Easter, we'll have some good news here out of Romans. But today, we're working through kind of an interesting text. Now, I realize that this part of Romans that we've been going through is kind of strange. It's kind of foreign to us. We spent several weeks talking about Judaism and the Mosaic law and circumcision and a lot of these kind of things that we don't typically think of as being really relevant for our lives. I doubt that you got up this morning and thought, I wonder if it's sinful for me to eat bacon, right? You probably didn't do that. So what we're doing, though, is we're kind of listening in on a conversation that's going on 2,000 years ago. As Jews and Jewish Christians are kind of debating what's going on, we're getting, these, we're getting to overhear these snippets, okay? And it's our job to see the argument that Paul is making and find out what is going on. It's kind of like, so there are a lot of things I hate about social media. But one of the things I love about social media is that Twitter, just about every week, will have a place where people can submit conversations that they've accidentally overheard, okay? They can submit little snippets from conversations. Maybe they're on the bus, or maybe they're on the train, or maybe they're at a grocery store and they overhear somebody say something super weird. They send that out then to Twitter and everyone can read it and it's out of context and it's hilarious. So let me share a few of those with you. The first one is this. Somebody overheard somebody say this on a train. I want a baby. She wants a dog, but we just can't spare the time to commit to a dog, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, if you don't have kids, but caring for a baby is like 900 times harder than caring for a dog, okay? Here's another one. Someone's riding on a, uh, a subway, and they heard somebody say this. Did you lock the door? I think I left a croissant on the table, right? <laughs> like someone's going to break into your house, not steal your money, not steal your TV, but walk over to your table and eat your delicious croissant sandwich. That's what they were concerned about, Okay? Somebody else heard somebody say this. They were walking down the street and they were on their cell phone and they overheard them say this. Suing somebody is such a process. Just go and slash their tires and call it a day. Right? <laughs> and then my favorite one, outside of a Whole Foods, if you know what a Whole Foods is, it's kind of like a, a natural, less preservative-y uh, grocery store. There was an ambulance outside of a Whole Foods and uh, somebody overheard somebody say, somebody must have accidentally eaten gluten, right? Which is great. <laughs> 
That's kind of what's going on in this first part of Romans. So we overhear this conversation, and we're trying to figure out, wait, what, what is Paul saying? What is he responding to? And so the, the benefit, though, is in this letter, we're given more context than that. We're not just given a snippet. We're able to trace Paul's argument through chapter 1, through chapter 2, through the first half of chapter 3. And then, after the first half of chapter 3, Romans gets pretty encouraging the rest of the way out, all right, the rest of the way out. So before we get into this specific text, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will continue. Father, I thank you that you are good and that we are not, and yet you love us because you've sent Christ and you've given us your spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so I thank you for this time. I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word and that as we just work through this text, that chains in people's lives would be broken, that people who are already believers and are carrying around broken chains would realize that, that people would be saved, that people would be healed, that marriages would be healed. We know that your word is powerful, and so we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get into this specific text, I want to give you a little illustration. So, um, my wife is extremely patient, all right? It's, it's like she has limitless patience. I'm not an easy man to be married to, and she also has to watch two little kids all day, one of which is somewhat moody. And so uh, I'm not an easy man to be married with. Let me mention three things that I do that are just terrible, okay? Three things that I do that are awful. This is a safe place. This is confession time, okay? So here's the first. I am unable to put clothes where they belong, okay? Period. doesn't matter. I will literally fold a pair of pants drop them on the floor, and then go to bed. I don't know. If I could, the time it takes me to fold the pants, I could just hang them up. I could fold them, put them in the drawer, but I will fold them and be like, that looks perfect, and I'll just throw them down, and that's it. If I throw clothes near the hamper and it doesn't go in the hamper, I just think, I'm sure somebody will take care of that. I'm sure that's someone else's job, right? I just can't do it. She'll come home, and she'll be like, why are there socks in the sink? And I'm like, I just got home, took off my socks. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. So probably Judah. Judah probably put them in there. It's probably his fault, right? So I'm unable to do that. I am hopelessly pessimistic, okay? You could tell by the fact that I just used the word hopelessly, okay? I'm not the glass is half empty. I will look at a full glass and I'll be like, that thing is completely empty. I'm just super, super pessimistic. I will get a pimple and I'll be like, Katie, I have face cancer. I need you, I need you to help me because I just assume the worst. I'm a hypochondriac. I get way overly stressed about the budget. I'm like, what do we spend this money on? She's like, food for the babies. I'm like, how much do they need to eat? Do they need food? What else can we do? What can we shift around? All right. If somebody has a conversation with me that's positive, I'm always looking for an ulterior motive. I'll be like, Katie, I'm stressed out today. She's like, why? Well, I had a conversation with somebody. What'd they say? They said that they love me. That means they hate me, right? That's what I do. I just assume the worst and all those things. If it rains, I just assume that an F5 tornado is coming through. All right. It'll be missing like yesterday. I'm watching the weather app. I'm looking at the clouds and I'm like, Katie, get the kids to the basement. She's like, we don't have a basement. I'm like, dig a hole. Safety. Safety. That's what I do. I told her that if I die, I need her to marry someone who's happy. Someone who's like overly happy that thinks everything is awesome. I've asked her to do that for her sake. Okay. And lastly, there's a bunch of other bad things I do, but we only have so much time. Um, Lastly, one of the things I'll constantly do is I will constantly be talking to myself. Okay. Not like a crazy person, but I like working through arguments. And sometimes talking out loud helps me work through arguments. So I'll be like in the shower and she'll overhear me say something like, and ninthly, and she's like, who are you talking to? I'm like, the Pope. What do you mean who am I talking to? I'm arguing with the Pope. If he were to say this, what would I say? Okay. I'm always working through that. I don't know what you do before you go to bed, but before I go to bed, I think if they were to say this, what would I say? And then they would say this, and I could say this, and then I've won the argument. That's what I do before I go to bed, okay? So now the reason I tell you that is because that's kind of what we get in this text. Verses 1 through 8 is really Paul thinking out loud. It's what's called a diatribe. He's going to give a long extended argument, and he's going to anticipate his opponent, 
and he's going to address their responses, okay? A good rhetorician, a good writer, or a good speaker, they will anticipate the objections of their audience, and they will respond to it in their speech. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. As the Apostle Paul is explaining the gospel and explaining this message here in Romans, he's going to anticipate these objections that people could bring up. This doesn't mean they've actually brought up the objections. It doesn't mean he's writing against one person in the Roman church. What it means is, is that he's thinking somebody could come to this wrong conclusion, so I need to shut it down right now. So I need to shut it down right now, okay? Now, this text is very, very, very difficult to understand. At least two commentators that I've read said it is the hardest section in Romans to interpret. Now, I don't say that to discourage you. I say that simply to say this. As we move through the argument here, I've put four summary statements of what's going on, and we're going to put those up on the screen as we go. That way it'll help us summarize the argument that the Apostle Paul is making. With all that intro, you ready to get into the text? Two of you are. The rest of you can just keep listening at me yell. All right, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Okay? The Apostle Paul just said, if you want to be Jewish, you got to become a Christian. It's those who have faith that are truly Jewish, Uh, not those who simply are genetically linked to uh, Abraham. And here he's going to ask the question, then, is there any benefit in being a Jew? Is there any benefit in circumcision? Let me recap both of these things, just in case you haven't been with us in the Roman series, okay? What is the deal with Judaism? What is the deal with Israel? Why are the Jews talked about? Why is three-fourths of your Bible dealing with the nation of Israel? What, What is going on? Well, here's the deal. All humanity rebelled and sinned against God, and God could have just destroyed us. But instead, he decides, in eternity past, that he is going to redeem humanity. Then what he's going to do is he's going to send a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to live the life we should have lived. That Messiah is going to replay the role of Adam and succeed where Adam has failed. That Messiah is going to die for our sins and then be raised so that we might be reconciled to God. And the way that God does that is he goes to a man named Abram, later names him Abraham, and he says that through your descendants, I'm going to send a Messiah. Through your descendants, I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix what's broken in the world. That's kind of the deal with Israel in the Old Testament. The example that we've given many times is that it's like all humanity is drowning in the ocean, and Israel is God's Coast Guard, okay? Israel is the one, are the ones who are supposed to bring this good news of Yahweh to the nations. But the problem is, is that the Coast Guard gets lost at sea as well. Israel was meant to be a city on a hill. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. But they failed, and they did the exact same thing that the pagan nations did. They fell into idolatry. They fell into sexual immorality. They tested and grumbled against God, etc. That's the story of Israel. That's what's going on. By the way, the Bible is not just a bunch of random, disconnected stories. I think that's how a lot of us were taught the Bible growing up. You go into Sunday school, or you're doing a little Bible study lesson with your parents, and they're like, this is the story of Noah. He had a big boat and animals. And you think, that's important, animals. No, the Noah story is about how God killed everybody, okay? It is the opposite of a bedtime story. It is a great nightmare story for your kids, okay? Remember that time that God got so mad that he killed everybody except one family? Night, night, you turn out the lights. That's Noah, okay? Or the story of David and Goliath is not a story of how the little guy can beat up the big guy, right? They read that right before the big basketball game in the movie Hoosiers or something like that. It's about how an anointed Messiah king of Israel delivers God's people from an enemy that they can't defeat because he's too powerful for them and leads them into peace and prosperity. The Bible's not a collection of a bunch of random stories. It's one big overarching story showing how there is one God who's king, we've rebelled against him and everything became broken, and how Christ is reconciling everything to God. That's the story of the Bible. So that's what's going on when he's talking about Judaism, which leads to the next point. 
what is he talking about when he talks about circumcision? Why does he mention circumcision? What's the deal with circumcision? Jeff mentioned this last week. Circumcision is what's called a synecdoche. If you're an English major, you know what that is. If you're not, you have no idea. What is a synecdoche? A synecdoche is a literary device where you use one part of something to talk about the whole, okay? So I'll give you an example. If you pull up in your sweet car and I say, man, that's a nice set of wheels. That doesn't just mean I love your tires. It means I love your car. Wheels are a synecdoche for the whole car. Or Jeff mentioned last week that if you say there's boots on the ground, that doesn't mean there's just a a pile of combat boots somewhere. It means it's a synecdoche. Boots are a synecdoche for soldiers or troops. Or if I say at home I have three mouths to feed, I'm not just feeding their mouths, I'm feeding the whole person. Mouths is a synecdoche. It's something that stands for the rest of it. That's what circumcision is, specifically in how it's used in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul is talking about circumcision, It is a synecdoche to talk about everything that it means to be Jewish and everything that it means to follow the Mosaic Law. Being a Jew, following the Mosaic Law, and being circumcised are all synonymous with Paul. So when he talks about circumcision, he's talking about this mark that made you be seen as part of the covenant people of God. You with me? Now, why circumcision? Why is that the mark of being in covenant with God in the Old Testament? Have you ever wondered that? Does that seem weird to anybody else? I think if God were to come to me and say, this will be the mark that you're in covenant with me, I'd be like, can we just get matching t-shirts or can we do something else? Why is it circumcision? Why is that the mark that's given to Abraham? Why is the removal of the foreskin of the male genitalia, why is that the mark of being in covenant with God? Well, there's three reasons. The first is that Israel was to look different than the other nations. Israel was to be holy. They were to be set apart. Most other nations didn't practice circumcision. Some did, but most did not. That's why they're called things in the Old Testament like the uncircumcised Philistines, okay? And so by being circumcised, it was another thing that made you look different than the other nations. By the way, uh, you may or may not know this, but at the time of Paul, in Greco-Roman culture, most major cities would have gymnasiums. Do you know what the word gymnasium means? It comes from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked, because you would work out naked in the gymnasium, okay? And so in Paul's day, whether or not you were circumcised or not, people would know. People would know this is a culture that bathes in rivers and these kind of things. It was a further mark that was to distinguish you from the pagan nations. Number two, why did God command circumcision in the Old Testament? Number two, circumcision is seen as a mark of holiness. It's a mark of purity. To not be circumcised in the Old Testament was seen as something bad, seen as something pagan. Okay? It was seen as a mark of purity. For example, in Egypt, the priest would be circumcised, but nobody else. Well, Israel's to be a kingdom of priests. They're to be a priestly kingdom or a kingly priestdom, and so all the males in Israel are circumcised. So it was to to show this mark of purity and holiness. But the third reason, and this is the most important one, and this is the one Jeff mentioned last week, the reason circumcision is given as this Abrahamic covenantal sign in the Old Testament is because it's directly linked to the promise. What is the promise that's given to Abraham? It's that through your seed, the Hebrew word is zerah, The Greek word is sperma, let the reader understand, that through your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. Through your descendants will come one who's your great, 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 great grandchild, and he will put the world back to rights. So the reason that circumcision is the mark in the Old Testament is because it's linked to the promise. The promise is you're going to have a bunch of kids, so let's put the mark of that promise on the organ through which kids come. That's the idea, okay? So as a Jewish husband and a Jewish wife, would get married and have these Jewish children, it would be a reminder, God's going to send somebody. He's going to send somebody. 
He's going to send somebody. He's going to send somebody. And that person will fix what's broken in the world. Okay? That's what the Apostle Paul will continue to say. He's addressing, again, a Jewish audience. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Look at verse 2. You would expect here for the Apostle Paul to say none. He just said that really being circumcised physically doesn't matter. It's whether or not you know Christ. So you'd expect him to say none. But look what he says in verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, here you're expecting Paul to say there's no benefit in being Jewish, no benefit in circumcision, but he actually says there are some benefits, the chief one among them being that they had the Scriptures, okay? Being that they had the Scriptures. Romans 9, 4 through 5, I think we're going to throw it up on the screen. They, the Israelites, I'm sorry, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, notice Jesus is called God there, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When a Gentile woman asked Jesus to heal her kid, he says, I've come only to the lost sheep of Israel. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul will go into a Jewish synagogue first and preach the gospel, and then when he gets kicked out, he will go to the Gentiles. Okay? So, is there some benefit, Paul's going to say, in being Jewish? Yes. But is there a saving benefit in being Jewish? The Apostle Paul will give an adamant no. He will give an adamant no. Okay? Now, what does it mean to say that they're entrusted with the oracles of God? That's, that's probably more than just a general reference to the Old Testament. Okay? It is a reference to the Old Testament, but why does it use the term oracles instead of just saying the scriptures? And the reason being is the idea of an oracle of God is a time in the Old Testament where he's shown up in a powerful way and has made a covenant to save Israel. So when God delivers Israel out of Egypt, that's an oracle of God. Or when he uh, you know, leads them into the promised land and kills the Canaanites, that's an oracle of God. What Paul is saying is there is a benefit in being Jewish, and it's simply this, that you know the saving promises of God as revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is seen as high and lifted and valuable and lifted up, and we should see it that way today too. Deuteronomy 4.8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Psalm 147.20, he has not dealt with us at, with any other, I'm sorry, let me, let me read that again like I know how to read. <clears throat> he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules, praise the Lord. John 4.22, you see this with Jesus talking to the woman at the well. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Okay? So there is, seen that there is this benefit in having the Mosaic Law and having some sort of understanding of who God is. But what the Apostle Paul will say is that that is not good enough to save you. That is not good enough to save you. If there's a priority of Israel in salvation, then there is also a priority of Israel in judgment. That's what the Apostle Paul will say when he talks about judgment being for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It doesn't mean Jews are saved in a different way apart from Christ. People are only saved through Christ. What it means is that there's a priority in salvation and a priority of, in judgment for Israel. I'll give you a little story. Uh, I know of a lady who uh, is a Christian lady, and she went to a Jewish synagogue to talk to a rabbi. She had some questions about Judaism, and she went and talked to a rabbi, and this was the question she asked the rabbi. She said, what about Jews that are just completely unfaithful? What about Jews, the, the specific question she asked is, what about Jews that are involved in the entertainment industry that are doing inappropriate things? What about those that are involved in the adult entertainment industry that are producers and these kind of things that are Jewish? What about those that are uh, walking in some type of sin? What about those in Jewish gangs? Did you know that there are like Jewish mafias? That's fascinating, but they exist. What about those Jews? What happens to them on Judgment Day? You know what the rabbi said? They're still saved. 
because they're Jews. He said it's like when you take a bunch of clothes and you put it in the wash. Some of those shirts might be dirtier than others, so maybe you've got to put them through the spin cycle one more time, but all the shirts come out clean in the end. That was this guy's response. So whether it's today or whether it's 2,000 years ago, there's this idea that if you're Jewish, just by being Jewish, you're going to be saved, and the Apostle Paul's going to say no. Are there some benefits? Sure. Are there any saving benefits? There are not. So here's the first summary of Paul's argument. If you're confused already, we're going to put it on the screen. Number one, first summary of Paul's argument. Is there any advantage in being a Jew? Yes, in the sense that you have the Bible, but no in the sense that you don't obey the Bible. Yes, in the sense that you have the Bible, but no in the sense that you don't obey the Bible. Let's go on to verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The next argument that they're going to make against the Apostle Paul is that God has been unfaithful by not saving Israel. Okay, Here's what this text means. So if you're looking at verses 3 through 4, here's the, the question that's going on. They're saying, wait a second, Paul. You're telling me that all the Jews have broken the law and the majority of Jews have not believed in Jesus for salvation. Doesn't that mean that God is unjust? Because God promises to save Israel, right? In the Old Testament, they're his people. He loves them. He makes covenants with them. He loves Israel. He loves his people. And if they all break the Mosaic law and the majority of them don't believe in Jesus, has God been unfaithful? That's the question they're asking. And here's Paul's response in number four, verse four. By no means. Okay? What does that mean? There are several different ways to negate something in Greek, to say no, okay? You can just say no, ooh or may is the Greek word, depending on what response you're expecting. You can say no, no. You can put several no's together. In English, we think that that makes an affirmation. We think that that makes a positive, right? So if someone says don't not, we think do, okay? But it doesn't work that way in Greek. In Greek, you can stack up no's to say no, like even stronger, which actually I think makes more sense because if somebody comes up to you and they say Man, I don't never want to do that. You don't think they probably want to do it because they said don't never, right? But there's a stronger way in Greek to say no, and it's with a particular phrase, and the phrase is me genoita. Me genoita. It means no with an exclamation point. It means heck no, that's wrong, don't even think about that. It is a strong way to negate something in Greek. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, wait a second, are you wanting to charge God with injustice? Let me strongly say no to you. Let me strongly say no to you. And here's his response. Keep looking in verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Which means that God is faithful, even if some are unfaithful. Then he's true, even if everyone were a liar. The idea is that God is true and he is the standard of truth. Now look at this next part of verse 4. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay, let me explain what's going on. They're saying, Paul, if most Jews are not saved because they break the law and they don't follow Jesus, is God unfaithful? And the apostle Paul says no. What reason then does Paul give for saying no? There's two big interpretations on this. The first interpretation says that what verse 4 means is that Paul is simply appealing to the fact that God is beyond human critique. That God is beyond human critique. Okay. Now, by the way, that's true theologically. God is beyond our critique. He is the standard of truth. He is the standard of righteousness. He doesn't answer to us. 
He has never wronged you. He is perfect. He is above our critique. What court will you take God to if you have a dispute? What lawyer will you hire against God? It is true that He is far beyond us. He is wholly other. He is infinite and He is mighty. You even need God's standards to try to judge God, right? So part of that interpretation theologically is true that God stands above our critique. One of the things that uh, we have to explain as Christians is that if God is good, why is there evil in the world? Those that aren't Christians, those that might be, for example, an atheist, they have a bigger challenge of trying to define, does evil make any sense in a world without God? What do you mean by evil? Well, we shouldn't murder kids. Why? Well, I, I don't like it. Okay, so our ethics should be based on what you do or don't like. Well, no, me and a bunch of other people in society don't like it. Okay, so if I can get, just get a bunch of people to agree in 1942 that we should exterminate Jews, then we should. Is that the argument that you're making? So Christians have to explain how is there evil in the world. An atheist has to explain what the word evil even means at all. It doesn't mean anything. If there's no objective standard of truth, there's also no objective standard of evil and everything is preference. But even to try to critique God, you need God's standards. You need God's standard. He is above our critique. Even if all of us were liars, he is true. Let us be found liars in light of God's truth. That's part of what Paul is saying. I was actually uh, talking to a guy one time. He was a uh, police officer at another church. And uh, he said, Zach, I'm losing my faith. And I said, okay, well, if you're really saved, you can't. But what's going on? Okay. And he said, I don't know what to do with the Canaanite genocide. I don't know what to do with the fact that in the Old Testament, God commands Israel to put to the sword everything that breathes. Kids, animals, put them under the ban. Completely devote them to destruction. What do I do with that? And I said, okay, let me make sure I understand your question. You think that God commanded something that's wrong? He said, yes. I said, why do you think that? And he said, well, I think we all know that you shouldn't kill innocent people. And I said, well, one, they're not innocent. But two, why is it that you think we shouldn't kill innocent people? Well, because the Bible, wait, the what? The Bible says not to? You even have to appeal to God's standard to try to critique God. He is above and beyond our critique. Paul could have just said, you think God's been unfaithful? You're wrong by definition. God by definition is faithful and whatever he does is right and good. You've, you've missed the boat, oh Jews, is what he could have said. There's a time when I was uh, about four or five. I was born in Texas, amen. And uh, I was about four or five and we were living in Arlington and uh, I got mad at my parents and I said, I'm going to run away. I'm going to run away. I guess I'd seen a, a kid do that on TV or something. I said, I'm going to run away. And uh, I don't know what you wore as a kid, uh, you know, before bed, but what I would wear is I would just have underwear and a big sleep shirt. Okay? It was just like a big baggy sleep shirt. I don't know if you do that. That's what we did. And so I'm just wearing that big baggy sleep shirt and it, the sun's going down. It's almost bedtime. And I said, I'm running away. And my parents said, we don't want you to run away. We love you. I said, tough. You guys don't know what you're talking about. I'm running away. So I went to my closet, four or five years old, and I grabbed a handful of more shirts. That's all I was going to do. I'm just going to run away and live out on the street with some shirts. What I needed were some pants or some shoes or a career or something like that. But I have these shirts. So I've got a shirt and I'm just carrying a handful of shirts. And I'm like, forget you guys. Me and these shirts, we're going to be fine. We're going to leave. And so uh, I go out to the front porch, and they stand out there, and they said, we love you. We don't want you to run away. You can come back whenever you want. I said, I'm not coming back. So I start walking down the sidewalk. I look back. They're still looking at me. Parents, they don't know what they're talking about. And then it hits me. What am I going to do? Am I just going to have to, like, eat these shirts? Where am I going to live? What am I going to eat? And so I stop, and I turn back, and I walk back to the front door, and I say, I've decided not to run away. And they say, we are so glad, all right? 
even to rebel against my parents, I needed my parents. It's the same way with God. Even if you want to try to critique God, you need the mind that he has given you as you eat the food that belongs to him, as you breathe the air that belongs to him. He is beyond our critique. But I don't think that's the main point that Paul is making. That's true theologically. That's not the main point Paul is making, and here's why. This passage of Scripture that Paul quotes is from Psalm 51. Do you know what Psalm 51 is about? Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of King David, and he's up on his roof, and he's being kind of a gross peeping Tom, and he sees a girl, let's just say, taking a Bathsheba, right? And he sees her, and he says, man, I've got to get me one of those, and she's already married. And so he seduces her, commits adultery, and then kills her husband. Psalm 51 is, the, uh, is uh, King David confessing his sin as a worship song. One of the things we do in community groups is we have people confess their sins, and some people think that's weird, despite the fact that the Bible says to confess your sins one to another. But there are other places in the Bible, like Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin publicly. And it's a worship song. Can you imagine if we wrote a worship song about our sin? Like, you know, Tim comes up here Sunday morning, he's like, we've sinned against you and we hate you, God. And that's our worship song, right? That's what's going on in Psalm 51. He's repenting, he's talking about his adultery with Bathsheba. And one of the lines in there is he says, God, you were just to judge me. You were just to judge me. Now, let me tell you why that's important for this text. Was King David in covenant with God? Yes. Was King David a Jew? Yes. Did he still get judged for his sin and his unfaithfulness? He did. That's the point Paul is making. Paul is saying, if you want to say that God has been unfaithful, you've misunderstood. Because part of God's covenant to you is that when you sin, he will bring justice. Notice that the Mosaic law was not unconditional. It was, if you follow these, you'll live in the land. If you don't, you'll be cast out. You'll be cast out. So, just to summarize the argument thus far, again, we're going to put it up on the screen just so you can see the argument. If so many Jews have broken the law and not believed in Jesus for salvation, does this mean that God has been unfaithful in his covenant? Here's Paul's answer. No, because that same covenant promised that God must judge those who are disobedient. You with me so far? There's a lot of arguments going on here. Everybody take a big breath. Ah, let's just summarize everything we've done. Is there an advantage in being a Jew? Yes, in that you have the Bible, but no, in the fact that you can't keep it. Is God unfaithful in that so many Jews are not saved? No, because part of what God promises in the Old Testament is to judge them when they rebel, okay? Is to judge them when they rebel. Now, I want to show you one more thing up on the screen. This is fascinating. So next week, we're going to be in the doctrine of total depravity, which lines up with what Jeff talked about this morning in this text. But the Apostle Paul is going to till the soil in this text. I want you to see the contrast in these eight verses between humans and God, okay? The contrast between humans and God. I think we've got a little chart we're going to put up on the screen so you can see it. In verse 3, humans are said to be unfaithful and faithless, whereas God is said to be faithful. In verse 4, humans are said to be liars, whereas God is said to be true. In verse 5, humans are said to be unrighteous, whereas God is said to be righteous. And then in verse 7, it's going to talk about our sins being as like a lie, and it's going to say that God is truth. Notice the radical contrast between the holiness and perfection of God and the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity. Verse 5. Verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, meaning I'm just giving you this for argument's sake. I speak in a human way. By no means. There's that phrase again. May genoita. No. Uh, No, I I can't say it strong. Let me say it in Spanish. No. I can't say it any stronger. No. That's what he's saying. He's not. 
For then how could God judge the world? Okay, what's going on in this text? Paul anticipates another objection. Here's the objection. The objection is, wait, wait a second. Well, let me, let me explain it this way. I got a chance to take a uh, logic course, a few logic courses, but I had one logic professor in particular who was excellent. And, uh, and he taught us two really, really, really helpful things when it comes to making public arguments and public debate. The first thing he said was, whenever you're arguing with somebody publicly, you're never trying to win the person. You're only trying to win the people listening to the conversation. Okay? So when you're arguing with somebody one-on-one or you're, you're trying to share the gospel, that's one-on-one. You're trying to win the person. But if it's public, you're not trying to win the person. You're trying to win the audience. So if there's a debate in the church, we're listening, we want you guys to hear it, right? Or if it's a political debate, the opponents are not trying to win each other over to their sides, they're trying to win the votes of America. Or if it's in an academic setting, you're trying to win the students, okay? The second thing he said, which I thought was really helpful, he said, in argumentation, what you're trying to get people to do is to get you, you're trying to get them to agree with you on a bunch of different points, and then show them how that leads to a place where they don't want to disagree with you. Wait. I feel like I've just made a very non-logical argument. So let me say that again. The goal in an argument... I didn't have any Red Bull this morning. Can you tell? I'm tripping over my words. I'm going through withdrawals. Okay. When I'm making an argument, I'm trying to get somebody to agree with all these points and then show them how that leads to a conclusion that they don't want to agree with. That that's the goal. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing in these two verses. In logic, it is called an argumentum. Or it's called a reductio ad absurdum, an argumentum ad absurdum. It's a reduction to the absurd. Here's what that is. That's where you show somebody that if they follow the logic of their reasoning, it leads to a conclusion that's crazy. It leads to a conclusion that's ridiculous, and therefore they have failed in their reasoning. Okay? It's where you show somebody that, okay, let, let's, let's take your argument just for example. Let, let, let's just assume that it's true for argument's sake. That's what he means for I speak in a human way. Let's, let's just assume your argument's true. Then that would lead to this conclusion. But this conclusion's crazy, so your argument must not be true. That's what's going on. Here's the case that they're making. Here's what they're saying. Wait a second, Paul. So you're telling me that my unrighteousness shows how holy God is. My unrighteousness shows that God is righteous. Paul says yes. And they say, well, wait a second. Then how can God judge me for my sin? If really my sin and my unfaithfulness shows how holy God is, shows how righteous God is, then why would he judge me? Why would he have wrath on me? Wouldn't, that be, wouldn't I actually be doing something good for God's glory? And what the Apostle Paul then says is at the end of verse 6, he says, wait a second, if you want to follow that logic, then the lost Gentiles could make the same argument. You with me? Let me explain it again. There, the Jews are claiming that if my faithlessness, my evil, shows how holy God is, because it contrasts to that evil, then God shouldn't punish me. God shouldn't have wrath towards me, right? That's what they're saying. And the Apostle Paul says, if you want to continue with that line of reasoning, if you want to continue with that logic, all lost people could say that. All lost Gentiles could say that. Anybody could say, my sin is ultimately good because it shows God to be glorious, so he shouldn't judge me. And he shows them that that's a ridiculous conclusion. All right? That that's a ridiculous conclusion. So here's the third summary of this text. We'll put up there so you can see. This one's tricky. This is the trickiest. Verses 5 and 6 are the hardest part of this text. If God judging sin shows how awesome and righteous he is, and if people can only be saved by his electing grace anyway then wouldn't God be unjust to judge us? No, because by that logic, lost Gentiles could make the same claim that they shouldn't be judged, whereas God is the standard of justice. He judges everybody. He must judge sin. He must judge sin. I want to show you a text out of Romans, Romans 9, 15 through 19. Romans 9 is a fascinating text. When we get there, you will want to be there. We'll get there in about 
eight years from now as we go through Romans. We'll get to Romans 9, but I think there are echoes of Romans 9 all the way back here in chapter 3. Romans 9, 15 through 19 says this, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In Romans 9, the charge is this. God must be unfaithful because so many Jews are not saved. And what the Apostle Paul will say is, no, 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 God is faithful. It's always been about his electing grace. And they then ask this question then why does God get mad at me? If God's already ordained, who's going to go to heaven? Who's going to go to hell? Who's going to be saved and who's not? Why does he get mad at me for being a sinner if he's already ordained that I'm going to be a sinner? Now, for the answer of that, you've got to come back in Romans 9. I'm not going to answer that today, okay? But that same kind of idea goes back to Romans 3. If my sin shows God to be holy, why do I experience his wrath? Why do I get judged? What the Apostle Paul is going to say is, if you want to follow that line of reasoning, God could judge nobody. Election is not a minor doctrine. It pervades the book of Romans. These Jews realize that if the Apostle Paul just said that nobody keeps the law and nobody can be saved, the only way they can be saved is by God's grace. The only way they can be saved is by God awakening their hearts. And they're kicking against it, both here in Romans 3, and they'll kick against it again in Romans 9. Verses 7 through 8. We're almost done. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously, that Greek word, by the way, is blasphemeo, blaspheme. Some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This last argument is kind of tacked on to the previous one. They're saying, wait a second, Paul. If my sin shows God to be holy, then isn't my sin actually good? Right, like if you have a little lighter in here with the lights on, it's not very bright, but if we turn off all the lights, then that little lighter looks a lot brighter. So they're saying, doesn't my sin do that with God? Doesn't my evil, the evil of my sin show God to be that much brighter, that much holier, that much more righteous? And if that's the case, shouldn't we just sin all the more so that grace may abound? Shouldn't we do evil that good may come? What the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to say, that is such a stupid argument that I'm not even going to respond to it. That's what he does. He just says... For people that say that, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. It doesn't need an argument. They're saying my sin is actually good. Your sin does not make God holier. Your sin sometimes can show how righteous and kind God is, but that doesn't mean the sin itself is good, okay? That doesn't mean the sin itself is good. This is similar to Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 through 2 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at that phrase. Make inoita. There it is. It's all throughout Romans. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's the argument that they're making. Maybe my sin is actually good. Maybe it's okay to do a little bit of evil as long as there's a good result. Maybe it's okay to to eat a little bit of poison for this good purpose. Maybe it's okay to do this, this thing that doesn't seem that bad. It's a little bit bad for this great purpose. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say is that is so contrary to Christianity Let them be damned. That's what he's saying. For those that teach that that's actually what the Apostle Paul is saying, and he's not saying that, let them be damned. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It is strong. It is a strong text. We as Christians do not hold a utilitarian ethic. We do not say, let us do a little bit of evil that good might result. 
I will not kill an innocent person because you promised to give me a million dollars. That is unchristian. So let me take this text from 2,000 years ago and let you see some of the places where this kind of argumentation is used within our culture. And then we'll keep going. Abortion should be legal so women won't hurt themselves trying to do it on their own. Let us do evil that good might result. Okay? That's a crazy argument, by the way. There should be no safe way to commit murder. Abortion should be legal so those kids don't have to have difficult lives. They don't have to grow up in bad homes. So let's kill them. Let us do evil that good might result. We shouldn't discipline our children, despite the fact that the Bible tells us to strike them with the rod. We shouldn't discipline our children because that will make them feel bad about themselves. Let us do evil and disobey God's command that good might result. I don't want my kids feeling good about themselves. I want them to realize that they need grace in Jesus. My goal is not to build up their self-esteem. It's to build up their God-esteem. Okay? Freedom of speech or freedom of religion should be banned so other people don't get offended. Let us do evil that good might result. I should divorce my spouse so they can have a better life without my negative influence. I should commit suicide or kill myself so that I don't have to continue in my suffering. Let us do evil that good might result. I even heard of a guy who one time uh, got a mistress so that he wouldn't, quote, have to divorce his wife. He said, my wife doesn't fulfill me, and so I got this mistress. Isn't that a good thing? I was going to have to divorce her, and I wouldn't have gotten to see the kids, but now that I have a mistress, it's so great because I can stay married and I can stay around my kids. As he said it through a forked tongue. Let us do evil that good might result. And the Apostle Paul says, no. For the argument that would say, because my sin shows how holy God is, therefore the sin itself is good, Paul says, their condemnation is just. That is not our gospel. That is not what we hold as Christians. So here's number four. Here's the last summary of Paul's argument. If my sin shows how holy and glorious God is, then is it really such a bad thing? And Paul says, yes, it's bad, and it's such a dumb argument that I'm not even going to dignify it with a response. I'm not even going to dignify it with a response. Your condemnation is just if that is your kind of reasoning, that I should sin against God because it's actually good. Now, what do we do with this text? This is a weird text. Next week, I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, even though it's uh, very scary. It's an exciting text. This week is us kind of listening in to Paul thinking out loud of potential objections to his gospel and responding to them. I think I've got two applications for you where I think that we can pull this into 2018 from this text. Let me give you these two applications. Here's the first one. Where do you feel like you are in the right and God is in the wrong? Where do you sit in judgment on God? Where are you upset with God? Where do you feel like he's wronged you? Think through your life. Think about these for a second. Where do you feel like God's wronged you? Has he ever wronged you? Has he ever taken something that doesn't belong to him anyway? Where do you feel like he's wronged you? Is there an area of your life where you feel like God made a bad decision? He shouldn't have done it that way. He should have done it a different way. Where do you think he's broken his promises to you despite the fact that he never promised you many of the things you just assume that he has? So here's what God's promised you. To never leave or forsake you, forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, etc. But I have found that most of us, myself included, will find, our, find times in our lives where we're mad at God because we think that he's broken promises to us that he never actually made. God has not promised you a good marriage. He has not promised you a good sex life. He has not promised you children. He has not promised that your children will be healthy. He has not promised that your children won't be lost. He's not promised that your business would succeed. He's not promised that you won't get cancer. He's not promised any of those things. Well, yeah, he did, Zach. He told me in my heart. That's not the Bible. Yes, the Spirit can guide us in our hearts, but God does not give us new revelation or new promises or something like that that aren't already in the Bible. Where do you feel as though God has wronged you and broken his promises despite the fact that he probably hasn't promised you many of the things that you assume that he has? Where do you think he's taking something that belongs to you and not to him? God's never taken anything that didn't already belong to him other than your sin in Christ. 
Where do you think that you would make a better God than God? Where do you think you would make a better God than God? So you see, what these Jews are doing is they're bringing these charges against God, and the Apostle Paul says, he's above your critique. Who do you think you are? Listen, it's not just that God is smarter than us. He's infinitely smarter than us. All the days of eternity and all the experiences we will ever have and all the songs we'll ever sing, which is an infinite amount, he knows all those songs and all those days and all those experiences right now. He's never had a false thought. He knows all truths. He knows all possible truths. He's everywhere. He has nobody. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's all... How many languages do you know? Not only does God know every language, he knows everything that could have been a language. Every possible derivation of everything that could have been a language. He is above us. We don't get to critique him. We don't get to be mad at him. We don't get to think that he's done something wrong. Who do you think you are? God is above our critiques and he has not wronged us. He has not wronged us. He is... uh, You guys know what Chuck Norris jokes are? There are all these little jokes where people make Chuck Norris really, really great. They're really funny. Like, it took three women five days to give birth to Chuck Norris. Things like that. God, like Chuck Norris, can count to infinity twice. Okay? He's beyond us. It's not just that you're, you're strong and like an army tank is stronger than you and a nuclear bomb is stronger than that and God is just at the top. God is qualitatively better than you and I. He's qualitatively, not just quantity, qualitatively smarter, stronger, better than all of us. He knows what's going on. Who do we think we are? We don't get to charge him with injustice in any area of our lives. And then number two, where do you not treat your sin seriously because you're a Christian? Where do you not treat your sin seriously because you're a Christian? Because that's what the Jews are doing in this text. They're saying, because I belong to Judaism, because I'm a Jew, I'm safe. I'm safe. This sin doesn't really matter. It'll all come out in the wash, like that rabbi said. The Apostle Paul is going to say, yes, you're forgiven in Christ. Yes, you're loved by God. Yes, your status doesn't change. But if you think that that makes your sin somehow less dangerous, you're wrong. You're wrong. You see, I found that there are really two kinds of Christians. There are Christians that err on the side of legalism, where they think that they have to do all these rules and check all these boxes so God will love them. And there are Christians that err on the side of sin, what's called licentiousness, wild living. Okay? The solution to both of those things is the grace of the gospel. For the legalists, they need to hear about grace. You don't earn God's favor. He gives it to you. You're broken and dead and sinful anyway. You can't do it. He gives you 100% of your salvation. You get 0%. In fact, you're in the negatives because all you contribute is sin. For the licentious person, the one walking in sin, what we think we need to do is give them more law. Well, they're just using too much grace, so we just need to cut it off. We need to give them more rules. But that's not the case. They need grace as well. They don't understand grace. If they understood grace, they'd see how Jesus is much more beautiful than their sin. So what end of that spectrum do you fall on? Do you tend towards saying, ah, forget the rules? Or do you tend towards saying, the rules will save me? The solution to both of those is grace. It's the mercy and love of the gospel. It's the fact that you and I have rebelled against God because he demands not that we be good, but that we be perfect, and nobody is. But that same God has sent Christ, his son, to die on a cross for our sins, to live the life we should have lived. All the times we should have been obedient and have failed, Christ has lived those. And he's raised him up showing that he is in charge. He is the king of the world. He is the one you are to submit to. So if you don't know Christ or you're not sure, would you repent and would you trust Jesus? Would you ask him to save you? Would you rest in grace? Would you rest in grace? Don't strive for it. Rest in it. The good news of the gospel is it's true regardless of how many doubts you have about it. Regardless of how many doubts you have about it. 
Let's pray as the men come forward who are helping serve communion. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your love and your grace. I thank you for this text. And uh, I pray that it would minister to us, even as strange as it is, as it is even as uh, culturally different as it is. There are places in our hearts where we judge you and we think we know better than you. There are places in our hearts where we assume that sin doesn't really matter. There are places in our hearts where we make these kind of ridiculous arguments. Would you instead help us realize that you're true? Even if everyone were found to be a liar, you would be true. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this text. In Christ's name, amen.